Hi, this is Amelia Richardson Teres, and you are listening to In Other Words, an eight week podcast series where we're exploring what it takes to talk to kids about the stuff that matters. I come into this work because I am a pastor currently serving at United Church of Christ Longmont. I'm also a writer who's done a lot of writing for parents, magazines, education magazines. And so I'm really interested in the intersection between kids and spirituality and social justice. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Amy Bollet. And if you are at UCC Longmont, you know Amy. She is a member here. She's also a professor of education at CU Denver School of Education. And she's and I have had so many great conversations about race and children. Some of the research that she has done around literacy has tremendous impact on the way that we can talk to kids about race at home and at church and of course in schools. So let's get started. So I think the first question that I had wondered about is where your interest in this topic came from. Really, I think it started um, during my graduate studies. We had really discussed issues of race and culture and language and how they intersect and how the implications of those for um, educating children and youth. And it was a huge (laughs) learning and growing experience for me. And I... Through the, through the doctorate program and then into my research as I was developing my research agenda, I realized um, just how important this topic is. And um, because I study literacy for children, I really wanted to focus on using texts as tools to discuss um, these broader social topics of advantage and disadvantage. Um, and how the the world is structured in such a way that creates these oppressive structures for people. And so thinking about race specifically, even though it's a social construct, (laughs) something made up by people, its effects are very real. And so to name it is very, very important. I've also found in my research, um, even when not looking for issues of race, So, um, for example, studying something like how children learn to identify or generate the main idea of a text, my colleagues and I found that even with texts that are explicitly about race, youth, children and youth, still are very reluctant to name it. Mm -hmm. So whether in their their conversations or whether, whether on paper as they're writing, main idea statements or identifying main ideas <laughs> even when the text is literally the title is race you know race politics for example was a poem that we um, that was used in one of the classrooms the children feel compelled to evade the topic not necessarily because they choose to I would say but because um, in schools there's such an unwritten code or unwritten rule that this is something we don't talk about. And so in the, that official space of a classroom, the children were not, they were not talking about it. It only came up in 25% of the students' main idea statements where race was named in this poem where it's, it's the entire topic of the poem. So, so the implications there, and, and we found similar results um, use it with other texts about issues of race. So the implications there are that even, you know, if you're just, if you're thinking that putting a, a text or a book or a story or something, you know, in front of kids 
and thinking that that might be a sufficient way to integrate these topics into the classroom or into conversations, um, that the text will do the job for you. We found that not to be the case at all. <laughs> um, the teacher or the parent or whoever um, the facilitator or adult might be, the caregiver, um, needs to be very intentional, intentional about how that text is going to be used for the discussion about the topic. You mentioned that race is a social construct, meaning that's something that we kind of create and buy into. And so if the children weren't picking up on that, is there a way of looking at that in which that's a good thing? Mm -hmm. Why do we need children to talk about race? Mm -hmm. Yes. So children pick up on patterns and they learn patterns at a very early age. And so while we might tend to think that no one is born racist or no one is born knowing kind of these differences and these social constructions, they learn them very quickly. So by the age of three, children are able to distinguish between racial differences. And, um, and this was made well known in the doll tests um, conducted in the 1940s by Kenneth and Mamie Clark. And in fact, these tests were used used as evidence in the Brown versus Board of Education ruling. And what they found with these doll tests is that when presenting children with a doll um, lightly colored, so as if a white baby, and a doll that's darkly colored, so as if a black baby, and asking questions like, which is the smart doll? Which is the good doll? Which is the ugly doll? Children were identifying these dolls based on these racialized um, and stigmatized notions of, of race. So, so by and large, you know, the white doll was identified as the smart one, the good one, the pretty one. And so even children as young as three were, were doing so. And we also know that children as young as three can understand the concept of fairness. So so it is something that can be talked about and understood in such a way where um, children can know how things are fair and unfair for people depending on what you look like, depending on your race. Um, and we may talk about race as something as simple as skin color and hair color and eye color, even though you know we know it doesn't boil down to, to biology in, in that kind of way, but, um, but children might understand it in that way. We also know that if we don't talk about it and name it, kids pick up on the patterns. Whether those patterns are things that they observe at home, whether those patterns are things they observe in schools, or just in their communities. So for example, the people who are leaders in their communities, authority figures. So um, in positions of knowledge and power. So they're teachers, they're doctors, they're pastors. And then who, you know, the, the people who are in positions that they see as maybe, you know, not as prominent or not as in such positions of authority where they have power to make decisions or they they lead people or they tell other people how to think or what to do or so they might see patterns 
of the you know just in within the kinds of work that people do mm-hmm. so they they'll see that um, they'll pick up on that they may also pick up on it for example just in their classrooms and although a teacher may not intentionally be treating kids differently um, these implicit biases play out very unintentionally but at the same time very in a very real way so um, which kids are corrected in their behavior when <laughs> other kids of a different race doing the same thing will not get correct. Those kinds of things are ways that, that children and youth learn these patterns. Um, you know, very, very covert things, very implicit things, um, but also very significant, even if they're subtle. I think that's helpful and I know that we've talked and I've written before about thinking I'm not racist and I'm not raising a child in a racist way so I don't have to unteach anything mm-hmm. but I hear you saying that those patterns are existing everywhere and yes. so by not talking about them at home or at school or wherever we might be able to talk about them it's affirming mm-hmm. the pattern that exists because we're not mm-hmm. undoing it. it exactly yes and it I mean I think Dr. Gloria Letson Billings, she talks about um, it's a it's a current or a fog, uh, and other of my um, esteemed education research colleagues will will use these um, analogies or these metaphors to say it's everywhere, it's pervasive, it's in the air we breathe. Um, there there is this current that kind of represents this permanence of racism. And if we're not actively going against the current or, you know, trying to clear the air that we breathe, then we're, we're just going with the status quo. We're complicit in participating in, in these racist structures. And so it is everywhere. And it, and, um, it might even be in behaviors such as um, stepping on a bus and if there's a seat open next to a black man and a seat open next to a white man, and the, the parent with the, with the children chooses to sit next to the white man, even those kinds of things are ways that kids will pick up on it. The kinds of language that's used in school. So if African-American vernacular is corrected, um, because at school we learn standard English, and I put that in air quotes, Again, those are ways that, that teach kids that who these other people are, and what I mean by other, I mean teach white children that black and brown children, who they are and their identity, how they speak, how they learn, um, how they behave, what they come to school with, needs correcting. <laughs> it's not acceptable to be that way at school. At school, we're going to learn a different way. And schools tend to perpetuate white, middle-class, monolingual, English-speaking kinds of norms, cultural norms. So what, what can parents do at home then? And I know a mm-hmm. lot of your, you're a parent, mm-hmm. so, right. so you probably have great ideas. Sure. I, and your, your information and your research on schools is helpful because then we're kind of looking at, this is a situation that happens at school, but how do we undo it at yes. home? Yes, absolutely. At least in my experience, and I'm still learning, (laughs) I must say that. My experience is finding ways for it to come up somewhat naturally in conversations. So, for example, more recently, a song came on 
in the car, and it, it's an, um, an old spiritual. And so I used that <laughs> to talk to the boys about this spiritual that was sung. It's, you know, the lyrics are, I've got my mind stayed on freedom. And so, so talking about slavery and just the history of, of the country in the United States um, and, and the things that happened. And, and parents can determine to what extent you might describe those horrors. <laughs> but so talking about slavery and then talking about how now we're still, still dealing with repercussions of slavery, where there are these unfair advantages and disadvantages um, according to people's race, where white people still have an advantage. And it can be, you know, in simple terms um, to mention that. And again, with things like the news, things that happen in the news, I mean, I definitely defer to parents' discretion in, in terms of to what extent to talk about children. And also, I must say that a conversation with me and my white children is going to be much different than a conversation with black parents and their black children. Um, or brown parents and their brown children, or even families where the the race is not consistent biologically or not biologically. So, um, so I I, I want to recognize those those differences. And me talking to my white boys, there's there's going to be a lot more ease. There's going to be a lot more choice in how I, how and when I bring this up for for families of color. They're not afforded choice on when these things are brought up because these experiences happen daily. And these experiences are, are things that are out of their control that occur to them. And the hurts, the affronts are against them. <laughs> Whereas for my children, they're not going to experience the negativities that accompany issues of racism. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this comfort in talking about it. So I want to acknowledge that as a privilege because I can move in and out of this space as I please, essentially. I can protect my safety when I feel that I need to, whereas um, black parents talking to their children, there's more of an urgency, fear in them at a very young age. Yeah, I hear you walking that fine line between wanting to allow um, and encourage parents to make the decision that's right for them, but... Mm -hmm. But we are also recognizing that we get to make that choice. Yes. Um, I get to make a choice with my daughter, news I expose her to. Yes. Others don't get to make that choice because it is a matter of survival. Absolutely. I wanted to go back. You were talking about the books. Yes. And how we can't trust that they're, they're going to speak for themselves and, and teach kids. and. Books are such my go-to. You know, mm-hmm, right. I'm like, yes, there's a book on this. Right, right. So if we're trying to create moments to introduce these conversations, what? how could we do that? Like, what would, what would be a great example of using, introducing a book and then using it? Yes, okay. So books are a wonderful tool to create this scenario, create this context where we can have a, a rich conversation about this topic. And so, as I mentioned before, it is necessary for parents to have some forethought into it and to be intentional about how the book will be used. So, I have used books in a couple of different ways. 
at times it might be that you choose a couple of different books that you juxtapose. So for example, books about um, indigenous peoples or Native Americans um, are often presented as in this historical context. So whether we're talking about Thanksgiving, whether we're talking about you know, just Columbus's encounters as with the Taino people, we often think of Native Americans, at least in, in schools and, and in our culture, as people of the past. <laughs> They're de- depicted in the, um, the former traditional um, headgear and, and wearing, you know, living in teepees. When the reality is that 90% of indigenous peoples are in, in cities and not living in, you know, on reservations. So, and, you know, they, they live among us and are, you know, our neighbors and um, dress like we do. So, so choosing books that, that de- depict Native Americans in, in, um, in the different ways. Um, might be helpful to juxtapose and look at the differences. Um, choosing books that juxtapose the story of Columbus um, and those historical events. So, for example, there is a book titled Encounter, and it tells the story of the, um, the encounter with Columbus and his men um, from the perspective of, of a young Taino child. Um, and you know, kind of the fascination and the wonder, and um, but then the fear that comes along with it. And at the end, it shows him as an old man sitting on a stump with his his feet basically have disappeared. And so in the book, it talks about essentially the massacre, the complete wiping out of his people's land, language, um, and their lives which is contrasted very, very starkly with other books about Columbus that we often find in schools, where Columbus is the protagonist, he's commissioned by the king and queen, he, he goes off on this adventure and um, searching for the gold, encounters these friendly um, people he called Indians, and they, you know, they taught him how to cook and use corn and you know all these very positive (laughs) depictions of that story so asking children to see the differences between the two can be a way to start to talk about things like race and and situate it historically but that doesn't have to be the only way we don't have to just talk about historical issues so another example is with a book titled amazing grace and it's about a young black girl in school who wants to be Peter Pan in the play. And her classmates tell her that she can't be Peter Pan. And one classmate says, you can't be Peter Pan, you're a girl. Um, And another says, you can't be Peter Pan, you're black. And so she goes home and she's discouraged, of course, and talks with her grandmother and her mother um, about what happened at school. And her grandmother encourages her to say, of course you can be Peter Pan. She takes her around town, and and downtown there's a production happening um, where the lead is a black ballerina. And so the grandmother is showing her, yes, you can be in this this theater, in this venue, and it doesn't matter who the characters are. Um, You can be the lead. And it turns out that eventually 
Grace does get the lead role of Peter Pan. Um, And so it's a wonderful story of empowerment and um, encouraging positive identity um, for this for this young black girl and so I think it's a it's a good book for children um, children who are white children who are of color to read and understand because of its theme and its lesson of black empowerment but again parents would want to make sure to talk about those issues and talk about the conversation that happened at the school with the classmates and how um, the classmates thought that she couldn't be something because of her identity. And maybe a question would be something like, you know, have you ever, have you experienced this before where certain people um, are not encouraged to be something because of who they are? And that might lead to conversations of more, um, you know, might be related to gender and might be related to race. And you might, you know, you might just prod or encourage or, um, or explain certain scenarios to the children. So for example, you know, after asking for their thoughts, you might talk about the story um, that, we, that recently has kind of hit the, hit the arts um, and entertainment media, the story um, in the movie Hidden Figures mm-hmm. of the black women who were the mathematicians um, that, who worked for NASA, um, who essentially helped get the white men, astronauts, to the moon. <laughs> and we often, you know, for too long, when hearing about this story, the first trip to the moon, it's focused on um, Neil Armstrong and um, just that, um, the, the, the launching and the trip. And we have not heard the stories of the, these um, intelligent and amazing black women who, who did the work, um, who had to use separate restrooms. And so it, that might be something then, you know, to suggest as another way that this has happened in history. Or, you know, maybe that it's something more contemporary that parents can, can talk about um, as related to it. But again, I think the, the important thing to note is that the, the text is the tool for a larger conversation and not just the, the stopping place. That's really, really helpful for those of us who might tend to think that that's going to do the job. You know, if we've read that book, mm-hmm. that's great. And I'm also thinking that some of what you said really talked about pulling in the situations into current times and to our times. Yes. Yes. Because sometimes there's a temptation to believe that these things either happen in the past or they happen other places. Yes. And so you're lifting up examples that are saying, um, in addition to watching and talking about hidden figures, to say, and that still happens. Yes. So that we don't think this fight is done. Absolutely. Yes. It's very, very important <laughs> to understand and, and perhaps as parents, as um, teachers, adults, and caregivers, there's a lot of work that we have to do mm-hmm. um, and continue to have to do to understand how these structures manifest. And defining racism, um, it's really important that we don't just think of it as an individual prejudice that we have against someone else um, or just 
the fact that we might be biased against a certain group of people or it's about someone else's bias <laughs> against a certain group of people. So to think that there's reverse racism, that's a, that's a phrase that often gets used, um, usually to suggest that, um, that people of color are racist against white people. Um, if we define racism as a system and a set of structures of advantage and disadvantage that intersect um, across political, socioeconomic, um, legal and judicial, um, educational, uh, health, <laughs> public health, uh, this variety of social structures, um, then we can understand it as systematic and structural rather than just an individual's perception or an individual's prejudice. Mm -hmm. And that helps us see how it, it maintains and, and still is so pervasive um, and can't just be taken care of by someone just deciding they want to be a good person. And so that's, there's a lot of work that has to be done within, um, I'll speak to white parents, um, to really understand how these issues manifest, understanding racism as structure, structural um, and systematic and not just an individual prejudice um, would, be, would be an important step to take. But I'm wondering how young and how can we talk to kids about if you see something like this happening, these are the words that you can say or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. these are the people that you could go to what are tools that we can give kids? So I think taking action, um, I mean, it's integral <laughs> to this work, absolutely, and making it explicit about what, kind, what kinds of ac action might we take. And again, this may just depend on um, the children, their experiences. Um, and so a parent or a teacher may suggest a variety of things. Um, Taking action might look something like, you know, once we're aware of, of some of these um, discrepancies, um, it, it might just be a matter of um, how we engage with kids on the playground. Um, and, and can we make sure that um, everyone's included and um, kids aren't being bullied because of what they look like, because of the color of their skin, um, that they get to have a say, that they get to have um, some power, some authority in the games you play, um, some leadership in the classroom, you know, maybe in, uh, in group work, um, that they get to be the experts on various topics or projects. Um, kids may or may not have control over some of those things, but older kids in collaborative kinds of situations might learn to become aware of those dynamics. Um, taking action also might involve um, a letter to a teacher or a letter to a person in authority, um, say a principal or someone, um, requesting maybe a possible change if there's um, you know if there's something going on 
um, in the students' lives that, that they view as potentially problematic. Um, maybe it's a letter to a congressperson. Um, and maybe it's related to like a community space, like a park or the renovations um, um, or the discrepancies in funding in school or something. So it could look like letter, a, a letter, a written letter to people in positions of power um, after a potential you know, study or conversation or talk about some of these, some of these issues. Um, I also tend to think of taking action um, for kiddos and youth who have experienced and continue to experience these um, macro and micro traumas on a daily basis as looking like something like um, self-care, where it's writing in a journal, um, where it's you know somehow um, showing kindness and love mm -hmm. to yourself um, as a really important part of taking action. I did think earlier in the conversation too, in terms of taking action and helping kids take action, your language around fair and unfair, mm -hmm. and the reminder that kids understand that pretty young. Yes. I think that that was really helpful for me too. It's like, oh, those are concrete words. Yes. That we can use. Yes. You know, that's not. Well, and I can um, tell a story about my five-year-old son <laughs> where I used, I can give an example of where I, I used that word yeah. um, in response to something he had said to me. So, um, so I was wearing some dark tights um, one day and and he noticed the the tights on my legs and said he was rubbing rubbing them and said mom you look like you speak spanish and i thought that was so interesting and insightful that he was he was relating to my tights as um you know making me look as if as though i had darker skin and if i had darker skin then maybe i am someone who speaks spanish and so, so he's, re he's seeing the intersection of race and language um, there. And, and so I, I pointed that out and I sa said something like, um, you know, I don't speak Spanish. I wish that I do. But you know that sometimes um, people who have skin like ours, they speak Spanish. Um, and sometimes people who have dark skin and who might look like they speak Spanish, they speak English. Um, and sometimes people speak both, and sometimes people speak three or four or five languages. And, and we, unfortunately, only speak English, and I would like for us to learn more languages. And then this is where the fairness comes in. So I said something about um, how a lot of times people who um, speak Spanish are treated unfairly. Um, because they speak Spanish or another language and they, they don't yet speak English perhaps to the extent that we do. And it was just a simple, you know, people can be treated unfairly if they, if they speak Spanish at home. And that's kind of just how I left it. Um, but it, it explains to him, it brings back to that issue of there's there are these um, structures that maintain power <laughs> according to language which intersects with race and intersects with um, all other social identities class gender 
uh, religion. And so, um, but just saying, you know, there's fairness that's attached to this construct of language yeah. and race. Mm -hmm. And I think that example, um, it's also powerful and just hearing you say that again and the reminder that we don't have to create a two-hour lecture for our children yes. every time we talk about race. <laughs> right. Um, and we also can't do it once. Right. So it's kind of back to that point that you made earlier about watching for the opportunities. Mm -hmm. And what a sweet, like it wasn't, you didn't shame him for saying you look like you speak Spanish because you're wearing dark tights. Right. Um, and, and so to me that seems like an important thing that we move towards also considering how hard it is for so many of us adults to talk about race. Yes. That part of our job as parents may just be making it easier to talk about race. Yes. So that as we move on through time, this doesn't continue to be a problem that we can't fix because we don't know how to talk. About. Yes. So I love that. I love that story, and I can picture it happening, which is really cute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and yes, and it is important not to shame or to shush um, when kids say things about when they when they name race, you know, in public or in private. Um, that um, we take that up. Um, and we talk about the beauty that is seen in, especially in people of color, because in doing so, we're going to counteract the pervasive, the pervasive idea of, you know, our, just our culture's standards of beauty are around whiteness. And so, um, so if we can and talk about beauty, we can talk about empowerment, we can talk about intelligence, we can talk about creativity that is found in, in blackness and brownness. And also just not to stick to this single narrative of, of oppress, oppression. One of the things that's so wonderful about interviewing Amy is the way that she moves between this academic and technical language around race and racism and the hands-on practical ways that we can talk to kids about these things. I take this as encouragement because it means that while the topic of race and racism itself is complicated, it's complex, and it grows increasingly complex the more we know about it. The way that we talk to kids about it doesn't have to be complex, and we don't have to be experts. Starting somewhere, anywhere, is better than not doing anything. So I hope that this is helpful for you. On next week's mini episode, I'll be following up a bit with some of the other information from Amy. And then in two weeks, I have an interview with Erica Anderson, who is a licensed professional counselor and a former coworker. I trust her a great deal. And I interviewed her a while back to talk to me about preventing sex abuse and talking to kids about sexuality, consent, um, all of the really hard, awkward things that matter when it comes to keeping our kids safe. Thanks so much for listening.